Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Trust Me with Rachel Parker. We're part of the Heartland Pod family of podcasts. Support what we do by leaving a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to the show and follow us on social media with at theheartlandpod.com and check out heartlandpod.com and click the Patreon link to learn about becoming a podhead today. Um, last week we didn't have an interview. I know. I try. You guys, I try. And this week, uh, I do have an interview because um, someone reached out to to us about talking to us, and I was thrilled to be able to talk to her. Her name is M.L. Smith, and she is the director of the organization, the Missouri Justice Coalition. For those of you who've been listening to the show for a while, uh, you know that criminal justice reform is something that's very deeply important to me. We've talked to other people around the state who are doing what they can to really advocate for people who are already incarcerated. Um, of course, stopping the cycles of poverty and um, the other issues that lead to, we'll say, being being kind of put in the quote-unquote system is of utmost importance. We also have to remind ourselves that it's important that we treat the people who are already incarcerated uh, with dignity and respect. There are certainly people that might deserve to be removed from society. I certainly believe that to be true. Uh, I think people that perform harmful and heinous acts uh, potentially need to be separated from uh, people they abuse and so forth. But uh, I believe that no matter the uh, crime that you commit, it's deeply important that everyone within that system is treated uh, fairly and that they're entitled to safety. So that was what we spent some time talking about. Um, I'm not going to spend too much more time doing the introduction. I hope that you guys enjoyed the podcast. And now here is my interview with ML Smith. So like I said in the intro, I am really delighted to introduce Ms. ML Smith. She is the founder and director of the Missouri Justice Coalition. Their website is www.mojustice.org. How are you doing today, ML? Well, I'm okay. It's Friday, so just trying to push through. Did you have a good week? Um, I was traveling for the last few weeks, and so when I got home, I probably I was really bed bound. Um, I have some health issues. I have a disability, so traveling, you know, kind of wears on me. So I took a few days to just rest and recover, but I'm feeling better now. Well, so. excellent. I'm so glad to hear it. So let's start off by uh, talking a little bit about who you are and what your organization does. Sure, sure. So, um, uh, well, first, of course, thank you all, you know, for having me today. Um, I am ML Smith. Again, I founded Mo Justice uh, about a year ago, a little more than a year ago, and um I am someone who is formerly incarcerated myself, and I have many loved ones and friends who are incarcerated still or have been in the past. And so this work is very much a passion of mine to uh, amplify the issues of incarceration in Missouri prisons, as well as to unify the people who are impacted um, and empower them to be able to you know, urge and um, press for change and reforms to um, the conditions of Missouri prisons. Thank you so much for that. So I've, you know, I spent a little bit of time looking at materials and it looks to me like you're, I mean, this is speaking broadly, of course, that you have a bit of a two-pronged approach. One is, of course, to prevent uh, nonviolent criminals, let's say, from being incarcerated, to prevent and to cut down on the cycle of incarceration, and also to improve the conditions of those folks who are already serving um, sentences. Can you kind of talk a little bit more about that and feel free to correct me if I overly simplified that? Sure, sure. Uh, well, again, thank you for that. Um, I will say I, I don't draw a line between violent and nonviolent, um, uh, quote unquote, crime. I believe that all crime is a product of our society, um, a product of people, you know, having no options, um, poverty. There are so many things that go into either violent or nonviolent crime. And honestly, many crimes, just the way they are labeled, 
could be considered violent and there was no violence, right? So um, I definitely don't necessarily draw a delineation, but I do believe that if we um, have a society that actually helps and supports our community, we would have less crime. Things like housing, you know, food security, education, et cetera, those things would go towards um, lessening that crime. But um, I definitely believe that our society should have alternatives to crime. I believe that we should um, never lose sight of a person's humanity and make sure that, you know, whatever um, punishment, you know, they, they deserve from, from doing something wrong that, that is also uh, tempered with recognizing their humanity and trying to help them become better people. So that's that's my overall you know message about you know this particular work, but um, but beyond that, yes, I am seeking to um, create a incarceration system where people's humanity, people are getting rehabilitated. Um, I will say actually, Rachel, I am an abolitionist, so I don't necessarily believe in prisons, but I believe that because they are there at this moment that they should not be factories of trauma, factories of death, factories of places where people go and become more traumatized than they were when they were in. And currently that's the reality of our prison system, you know, in Missouri and other places. So I believe that if, if our society says it's going to take someone and house them in this particular facility, in that time that they're there, they should have access to become better people and to rehabilitate themselves so that when they are released, uh, which over 90% of people in prison are released, they have outdates. Uh, when they are released, they come back to our communities as better people. We we shouldn't want re-traumatized people coming back out here. That doesn't help anybody. So um, that's really you know, one of the um, uh, um, reasons I founded the org and to actually make our system transparent, accountable, and truly rehabilitate people in the process of recognizing their humanity. That's beautifully said. Thank you. So if we are going to track a little bit from, let's say, where we were in 2020, when I think there were very broad national discussions for the first time around, we'll just say, problematic issues, to say the least, in the criminal justice system in the United States, how it overly targets and punishes people of color. Um, and then, uh, and I, I'm old enough to have lived through the Rodney King situation. I lived in Los Angeles in the early nineties and I was, I was there during that time and braced myself for the change that never happened. Um, 2020 felt different to me. Um, but there of course has been some backlash to that to say the least. So if you could talk a little bit, where, where do you think we are right now as it relates to the conversations and social justice movement that really coalesced around uh, in particular, the murder of George Floyd? Well, you know, I was recently at a conference and, and one of the um, topics in the conference were, was if we are in the midnight hour or if we're at possibly 3 a.m. And, and those two means, you know, if the midnight is basically we're just in this perpetual darkness and, um, you know, things are going to get better. Or if we're 3 a.m. and that means, you know, we're going toward the light. We're actually pushing towards, you know, um, the things that are going to make our society better. Um, and to be honest with you, there are moments where I'm in both of those categories. You know, there are moments where I feel helpless and hopeless, and there are moments Same. where I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, yeah, so do. yeah. There are those moments where I do feel like, you know, we're getting somewhere. But overall, I will say that since that 2020 moment, when these things really, you know, came to the forefront and um, there, there was a push with even our uh, organizations and what we call the NPIC, Nonprofit Industrial Complex, when they wanted to actually amplify the voices of the impacted, uh, mostly you know black and brown folks um, in this movement. And I thought that was a good idea, but I will say um, a lot of it has really been just for um, uh, the, the aesthetics of it all, right? Um, there are a lot of, of people who have been put in positions or amplified and just put as the face of a movement or an organization, and they don't actually have what they need to uh, make the adequate changes. Um, I have a mentor. Um, uh, he's an amazing person. His name is Glenn Martin, and he created this quote, and, and it's something that I live by, and I always uh, push forward when I am doing the work and talking about it. And the quote is, um, those uh, closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but furthest from power and resources. 
So during that 2020 moment, the people who are closest to the problem, you know, were put in positions where they are closer to the solution, right? However, they weren't really given the resources or the power in order to implement those solutions. So I think that, you know, we did take a few steps forward, but we are in many, many ways stagnant right now. And um, so I, I, I believe that in, in, in that, you know, we, we are really in a space where it's almost like, um, you know, representation is all. I'm not specific, speaking specifically, you know, for Black folks. Our representation is all, and you just have to, you know, be the face of something. And I don't necessarily think that representation is everything. I think that the actual work, um, the actual supporting um, impacted people, supporting marginalized communities, um, not just in the city of St. Louis or Kansas City, there are poor Black and brown folks in rural Missouri. And, you know, it's like there are people across the state who are very marginalized, who are suffering, and their families are suffering. And until we actually give those people, you know, the power and the resources to affect change in their communities, we're going to stay stagnant. So that's kind of where I, you know, feel like we are. When you're um, lobbying uh, in Jeff City, which I assume that you that you do a fair amount of, and um, who that that uh, I don't envy you. Um, where let's talk. Let's go from the. I think the midnight perspective is. I think you'd you'd be kind of a fool if you listen to this podcast in particular, uh, to not see the midnight of it all. Right. But let's talk maybe a little bit about the 3am aspect. So where do you see signs that, that prison conditions in particular and, and, and issues of how do we reduce recidivism? How do we reduce violent crime? How do we approach the issue of, um, I'll say community safety outside of the, the systems of traditional policing? Where do you see some areas of hope? And um, let's just leave it there. Like, where do you see, give me some hope, ML. Give me give me a nice little side dish. Like, I don't want a whole plate. I just want like a little ramekin of hope that I can dip my fries in later, if that's okay. Sounds good. So, you know, I will say that, um, and, and this is probably even beyond George Floyd back during like the Mike Brown uprising and the Ferguson uprising. I think that so many amazing people came out of that um, and who are still today doing some amazing work. I believe that that is, um, you know, leading that 3 a.m. hour. Uh, when we're talking about safety and community, there are some great organizations in St. Louis that are really at the forefront of, of that particular space. Um, and do you, I want think, to, do you mind throwing some of those names out there just for the listeners, like of people oh, that you, or, or oh, yeah, oh. let's, let's shout them out. Well, you know, first, um, I'll, I'll mention um, Freedom Community Center, and I am very good friends with several people um, over in that particular organization. They're doing some amazing work um, with their court watch program, and also people who uh, they assist to get out on bond. They have these uh, 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 classes and programming that they put them through, and it is amazing. It's a lot of healing going on. It's a lot of rehabilitation. It's a lot of actual, you know, people who have done something wrong, there is um, a space for them to make amends for what they've done, right? And F we call it FCC. FCC is definitely on a forefront of that. Um, also, Action St. Louis is doing some amazing work. Um, Organization for Black Struggle is doing some amazing work. A Forward Through Ferguson, there are so many orgs here and also in Kansas City that are doing some amazing work. And I believe that um, if those orgs and those people are, you know, put in those spaces of uh, that power and solutions even further than they have tr been trying to do, then we'll, you know, get even further. We've had some pushback in St. Louis um, with like our unhoused community issues, um, issues in our jail, et cetera. But the people who are doing the work um, are relentless. You know, we're all unified and we understand that, um, we will make a difference. Uh, uh, FCC has a quote, we keep us safe, right? So we actually keep each other safe and we need to be empowered more in order to do that. Um, so I think that those are reasons why we're at that 3 a.m. precipice in a lot of different spaces. And uh, Rachel, I wanna bring that across the state. I look at what you know, FCC, our um, action um, in Kansas City, some great organizations like Real Justice Network and Operation Liberation, what they're creating locally, I really want to bring that statewide, specifically about our prison system. And I think that the people who care, um, a lot of them are women who are mothers, 
wives, girlfriends of people who are incarcerated, I think that they need to be more empowered. I talk to so many uh, women who have like sons or husbands incarcerated and they're frustrated. You know, they're, they're, they're hearing from their loved ones, all of the issues. And even if they're calling, you know, the prison or emailing constituent services, they're either getting a runaround or no response whatsoever. And so I think they're really empowering those people who are impacted to actually make a difference. Um, there is a, you know, quote about people power, right? And if we collect, you know, collectivize that people power, we can truly make a difference, um, not only in the legislature and in, you know, the actual prisons, but even in the media, right? Um, so many things happen in our prison and every now and again, there's a blurb about it in the media, but the fact that there have been 105 deaths in Missouri DOC from January 1st to October 11th, that should be a headliner somewhere, right? Um, the fact that every year for the last several years, we've had well over 100 deaths per year in our prison system, that should be spoken about more, but it's not. And so I, I think that even, you know, getting media to really focus on some of these issues because our elected officials, they hate to be embarrassed. You know, uh, the DLC administration, they hate attention on them. And the more attention we can bring to these issues, the more that we can actually, you know, get in those doors to actually make a difference and, you know, uh, urge or even force the those people in power to do something about it. So I think I want to bring what happens locally to the state and bring everyone together who cares about these issues um, together so that we can actually make a difference. And that's really my goal. So I've talked to over the years and I don't I don't want to fudge anybody's names, um, so I'm not going to be specific about who I've talked to, but I'll say broadly that one of the issues that I've in these conversations about particularly the just abysmal conditions in the uh, Missouri prison system uh, that's run by the state, um, we could probably do a whole hour and a half on the problems in federal prisons, which are maybe even worse, but um, we'll just stick, we'll just stay right here in Missouri right now because so goes Missouri, probably goes, so goes Oklahoma, Arkansas, Tennessee, and so on and so forth. That one of the challenges is that prisons are severely understaffed, that guards uh, are not paid nearly enough, um, that it is an entry-level position. They don't have nearly enough training. Um, and I am going to hazard to guess that that has not improved post-COVID. Um, hiring is a problem for everyone. So how how much do you work with organizations that advocate on behalf of incarceration professionals? Because surely they are the the best backstop that we have to ensure that persons who are incarcerated, who let's be clear, they're wards of the state. Once you become incarcerated, you are basically almost like a child in the eyes of uh, the prison system. It's their job to protect you. It's their job to feed you. It's their job to house you. It's their job to clothe you. It's their job to provide you with healthcare services, all of it. And when I've talked to folks across the spectrum, they say, well, this is going to be a lot easier if we actually pay the correction officers a livable wage, if we require them to have maybe more than a high school diploma. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about how, and I, you know, I sympathize that these are rural jobs and that there's always a shortage of people in rural communities who are set, but talk if you would a little bit about how that dynamic affects the work that you do and where you see some, some cross participation with organizations that advocate on behalf of incarceration professionals. Well, I will say that, um, the, the main, um, organization, and I, and I don't necessarily work with uh, them directly, but the, that's honestly one of the issues is, is not. Um, very supported. So uh, the Missouri um, uh, corrections officers do have a union, right? Um, but some years ago, and you know, normally with unions, the, the dues for the union are normally taken out of people's paycheck, you know, to make sure the, you know, union is able to function and, you know, uh, fight for rights and pay and all that. Well, some years ago, and I believe it was around the time that the current director came into uh, the position. I do believe so. But some years ago, DOC stopped automatically deducting the union dues from officers pay. It's now basically they have to voluntarily pay it on their own, which as you probably can guess, that's not really working, right? So um, the CO's union is very much, I mean, basically defunct. Um, it is a, uh, a, a organization where they don't have a lot of support. You know, all of the CEOs are not paying into it, 
which of course goes to the fact that, you know, the pay has not really uh, kept up, um, not just pay, um, you know, all of the benefits, et cetera. The, a state job used to be one where you got great benefits, retirement and those sorts of things, which kind of made up for the you know, lower pay. But today that's not the case. So the benefits are not great and all of the other things are not great. So in combination with lower pay, they're just not attracting who they need to attract. Um, I do believe that there is some type of litigation going on concerning the CO's union. And I think there's always litigation going on with the CO's union. I think there was yeah. some, and there's a lot of different, I think there were, you know, the state was suing the union and the union then countersued the state. I, it sounds like the purpose of it all is to really, like you said, like break the back of the right. union um, right. because, you know, who wants a corrections officer to have a sustainable wage? Um <laughs> You know, and, and when I've read more about the uh, the way that the state has gone about reducing the cost of and I, this is one of the things that goes back to kind of the, the crime and punishment kind of mm -hmm. 80s era that certainly carried on and got worse through the 90s and has never, in my mind, really improved uh, marijuana legalization or no, is that the conservative movement gets it coming and going. Right. They get to say, well, we have to put dangerous criminals behind bars, but also we have to be physically fiscally conservative. So we can't spend a lot of money. And oh, by the way, unions and unions are terrible. And we're going to also support right to work uh, legislation. So um, sure. if you could talk a little bit, I mean, I, I, I did at the time interview. This was, I think, three years ago or so. I interviewed the then head of the Missouri Correction Officers Union, and he was talking about, among other things, how bad the food has gotten. Um, in so if you could talk a little bit about that, because they, I know they, they changed suppliers and they went from, I don't know, like if you, I don't know if you could talk a little bit about that, if yeah, that'd be really helpful. Yeah, no problem. And so, yeah, so with the COs, of course, the job is horrible to pay is horrible benefits, all of that. So, you know, that's definitely needs to be improved. But as far as like the food is concerned, um, and not just the food medical. So, you know, when, when, when they change vendors for stuff, of course, it's always, oh, this is getting better, right? We have a new vendor. Not necessarily so. So the state was providing the food services previously, and now um, they decided that they're going to go with a company called Aramark, and they have a really low um, contract with them. I think it's $5 million in Missouri. And so Aramark has been in there for, for a few months now, and um, the food is definitely worse. And interestingly enough, Aramark is in other prisons uh, uh, like Florida, and I see a lot of pictures on, on Twitter about, you know, the food in Florida prison because they get pictures out because they have contraband phones. But um, it's, it's, it's horrid. It's definitely horrid. Uh, states like Michigan, DOC, the uh, incarcerated folks actually, um, you know, unified and pressured the Department of Corrections to get rid of Aramark of several years ago, which they did. Uh, but Missouri got Aramark this past year. It was a very low bid. And the food is exponentially worse, to be honest with you. But the, the the administration will say, oh, we did something good. We got a new contract and it's going to be better food. You know what I mean? You can say, you know, chicken, whatever. You know what I mean? But that ain't necessarily chicken, right? And so uh, people definitely complain about the food. And I know the, the officer, the CO uh, person said that to you because in a prison, you really can't leave for lunch. If you're on a clock, right, you just can't go get in your car and go to McDonald's or anywhere. You, you kind of have to stay in the facility. So they do a lot of times eat the same, you know, similar foods that everyone else eats. And yeah, so that's definitely something to complain about, as well as medical. About a year ago, uh, Horizon, which was a medical provider, um, they lost the contract and a company called Centurion, uh, 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 you know, started a new contract with medical. But nothing has changed. Um, you know, there there are there are areas where it may have gotten a little bit better, possibly, but overall, um, it is the same, you know, lack of health care. Um, it's the same people. They just change badges from saying Horizon to saying Centurion. So it's the exact same people. Um, and the care is still lacking, you know, people. I know a man who is in his well in his 60s and needs a knee replacement, and you know, he, they won't give him one. But he told me another young man who was having issues with his knees, I think he's in his 40s, the, the um, medical told him well, when he gets to his 60s, he'll get a knee replacement. But this other person is there and he they won't give him one. So it's very difficult to get that adequate medical treatment. 
And I know, um, I'll stop and say a lot of people often say, well, it's prison. You know, you did something wrong. You should be punished, et cetera. But like you said, these people are in the custody of the state. So if someone is in your custody, right, no matter what they did, if they're in your custody, you are charged with providing humane treatment for them. And humane treatment is, is not saying people need a, you know, a, 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 a porterhouse steak every night. However, humane treatment is making sure that people get adequate medical, that they um, get food that is actually edible. And oftentimes that's not happening. Um, we have programs in prisons for dogs, like Puppies for Parole or Champ or different you know, programs where they train dogs. I don't know if you know this, but the dogs get bottled water. So the dogs, because they're being, their requirements are being managed by a non-government office or a, you know, we'll say like an NGO, which is kind of a terrible, non-profit of kind. And so they have their own requirements for, if you want us to have this, and I, you know, all of those programs always show that the rates of recidivism are better, uh, that the, that people get, you know, improved self-esteem. I mean, I haven't had a dog for almost two years and I'm ready to blow my brains out. Like I love dogs. They're the best. So, but those dogs are being monitored by a third party so of course their their care i say of course because i don't know that the state of missouri should really pat itself too hard on the back for um anything as far as public services goes for the last few years and before we go into that i just want to say too that the things that you're saying i've heard these things from other people and other people have said these things on the podcast before and when i interviewed the director of the missouri correction officers union he said that you could hold up so the food is delivered in these gigantic kind of like transparent garbage bags they're sealed on the top and so basically the um the kitchen staff whether it's you know prisoners or folks that work inside the prison cells sometimes it's both from what i understand um could hold the bags up and see molds growing in the bag so that so basically like the food they're getting ready to reheat they know it's inedible already they already know that it's inedible um, so that is uh, unhealthy and dangerous for everyone within the system, uh, both the corrections officers and the prisoners. So I would love to back up for a second. I would love to hear some of your thoughts on what are some alternatives to a jail sentence? So, for example, we've been, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've joked before on the podcast about how maybe it's time to stop doing things the way that we did in the 1890s. And that can mean everything from, and I'm a public, I consider myself to be a public school advocate at this point, but that also includes like maybe sticking the same kids in like these pupiled rows with one person talking to them all day is not maybe the best model for the, the students or the teacher, perhaps the way that we treat criminals or people, I should say who have broken the law, um, or run afoul of the law. Maybe the way that we treat them should also be maybe slightly different than it was uh, during the time that Charles Dickens was writing novels. So the number one issue for me when I look at the issues of why are people um, tempted or forced or whatever to commit or or uh, get, I'll say I'll say get pulled into cycles of criminality. We'll we'll say, I'll say it like that. People that have housing insecurity are amongst the most vulnerable members of our society. And therefore, they might like they might be in situations where breaking the law is the option they have to sleep, to uh, support themselves. Um, certainly, substance abuse, I know, is, is something that people often associate with with homelessness, although I, I would really caution people against that. A, a lot of people turn to substances because they don't have a place to live. So we'll take housing off the table because I think that's the number one issue that needs to be addressed if we're going to reduce rates of recidivism. Because uh, we will always say, well, we just need to educate people. I'm like, um, I don't think that's the area that I would go to either because educated people can lose their homes. So talk to me a little bit about some of the programs that you specifically would like to see architected in places like St. Louis. Well, I will say, um, you know, of course, besides housing, another thing that's high up there is mental health care. Um, it is just non-existent for the most part. Um you know, or people who are already poor or marginalized don't have access to it. And um, I was actually talking to a gentleman a few months ago, and he's probably in his 80s now. And we were talking about, you know, back in the 1980s when um, Reagan basically 
defunded all of the mental health treatment centers, right? And so many people um, were thrown out on the street from mental health facilities and those, you know, people became unhoused. They also, you know, um, of course, committed different crimes because of their mental illnesses. But this person, he was a pharmacist and he had a pharmacy um, in St. Louis on, on North Kings Highway again years ago. And he said that he, uh, prior to this rule, when people were still in mental institutions, um, a this mental health uh, drug, um, he probably prescribed 50 milligrams of it. And the drug, I can't, I think it's Thorazine, if I'm not mistaken the name of it, but um, he prescribed probably 50 milligrams of this particular drug on a normal basis. And he said after all the mental health facilities were closed, people were coming in in zombie-like fashion and where they had prescriptions for three and 400 milligrams of the same drug, right? And he said that he, he saw, he, he literally saw how society threw out um, people who had mental illnesses into the street. And so I think that another big thing is mental health care. Um, you know, right now there are places like treatment centers. There are waiting lists when you're poor and you don't have money. All of the treatment centers, there are huge waiting lists. But the private ones, they cost so much, you know, no regular people cannot get into them. So I think that mental health care is a huge issue. Of course, um, substance abuse issues um, in Missouri, you know, people say this is the meth capital of the, of the country. I don't know how true that is. But I definitely understand that there, and, uh, the drug issue, even in prison right now, when we're saying putting people in prison, you know, for drugs, they're going to prison and still having access to the drugs. And that's a whole nother conversation as to why. But I definitely think that mental health care and substance abuse treatment are two areas where um, it contributes so much to why we have incarceration and why people are incarcerated. And what to fix that, of course, providing people with health care providing people with mental health care, uh, making sure that people with substance abuse problems get not only the treatment for that substance abuse, but their mental health care. People who are doing drugs normally are doing them because they're dealing with some trauma in their life that they can't process on their own. So they turn to this substance to make them feel better even momentarily. So I definitely believe that those issues are things that we can um, deal with as a society and they would definitely um, you know, lead to less um, you know, incarceration and recidivism as well. Um, so those probably are the other two things in addition to housing that I think we we truly can make a difference in. And I'll I'll say that uh, years ago, uh, I was listening to someone who was an advocate for unhoused women in New York City. New York, for all of its problems, has a far superior shelter system and uh, low-income housing system than St. Louis does. Let's just do it. Let's just, everybody just take a deep breath. I'm going to say that again. The most expensive city in the country by a mile has better low-income housing solutions than the city of St. Louis does. Okay. So this person was working with the unhoused community in New York City, say, in the late 90s or the early 2000s and because they have an intake system they can ask people you know in a clinical environment or quasi clinical environment um tell me if you have sexual abuse in your history and something like 99 percent of the women did i you know again that's one of those um numbers that that never that never quite left me um so i don't want to beat up on anybody but Tishar, Mayor Tashara Jones of St. Louis, and again, this is, even if you don't live in St. Louis, this is to kind of think about how difficult these problems are for a local municipality to solve. I, I personally think that a lot of these uh, types of programs that we're talking about absolutely have to be done on a federal level. It's incredibly difficult for this to become consistent across uh, local governments. I don't, that isn't to say that I think that local governments don't have a, an incredibly important role to play, certainly when it comes to uh, criminal justice reform. Um so speaking of local governments and criminal justice reform, that is the uh, reason I would say that not only did uh, Tashara Jones, Mayor Tashara Jones of St. Louis, win office, but also why the voters of St. Louis reformed the way that we elect officials locally, such that it's not as it's a much difficult. Uh, it's basically so two Democrats can have a runoff election instead of. Um, you know, the the primary getting stacked with, you know, spoilers, essentially. So so here comes Merit Shara Jones, not quite three years ago, on this, um, you know, pretty robust platform of 
community justice uh, and criminal justice reform. How do you think that's going? And where do you think there have been some successes? And where do you think there needs to be areas of obvious improvement that she could solve tomorrow if the will were there? Well, um, you know, that's definitely something that I am intimately involved with our local um, issues. And um, I will say that, you know, uh, our mayor has some successes, um, things like the re reproductive justice. She has come out you know, pretty strongly, you know, trying to make sure that people in our area do get that support and that health care. And that is appreciated. But I will say the things concerning like, you know, the criminal justice aspects, um, the issues with the unhoused, uh, we as a community are pretty disappointed. Um, in, in, in St. Louis City, in our jail, within, I believe, a six-week period, we had three deaths. And after that, you know, it's like, okay, something needs to give, something needs to be done. Um, and, and with me working with the statewide and understanding there have been over 100 deaths in our prison, I definitely feel like we should not allow, you know, these things to just, you know, be forgotten and pushed to the side and uh, not improve so that more people die in our jails. That's not something that we want as community, as organizers. So I definitely believe that there has been some dropping of the ball um, concerning our mayor and those issues. I know that concerning the unhoused situation, um, one of the uh, our aldermen, um, um, Alicia Sonier, re recently uh, filed a, a ordinance about um, an unhoused bill of rights, right? And that's getting some pushback from the mayor and other people, you know, on our board of aldermen. So it's like, you know, even with these solutions, um, they're getting pushback as well. So we, you know, many of us definitely are disappointed. Um, the work continues, you know, to reach out to our mayor, reach out to our board of aldermen and try to work in community to, to get these things back on track and to make sure that, you know, um, our jails, our unhoused community, everybody who is marginalized in St. Louis, get what they need. So that is definitely an ongoing process. But, you know, I would, would be remiss to say that we are not disappointed. We definitely are. Um, but we definitely also think that, you know, there can and should be further discussions and further urging our mayor, um, and not just the mayor, you know, the prosecutor, um, the warden of the jail, and, and all yes. of those people in positions of power and authority in our city to actually do something and to get back on track. So that, that right. would go. So, so one of the things that Mayor Jones uh, set, stated was one of her primary objectives was to provide the city with an alternative to law enforcement's response to, say, someone having a mental health crisis, someone doing mental health checks. Um, so, you know, having uh, a, a different, and this, I remember she went to, I think she went to Denver with Representative Bush um, to talk about the Denver program, Denver now, the Denver uh I'm not sure if it's through the, I don't, I don't even think they're necessarily through through police, but when someone is calls 911 to dispatch law enforcement, if it's a mental health issue, a social worker is also uh, essentially like embedded with the, um, with the, the, the patrol car that shows up. I'm not exactly how sure it works, but it's something along those lines. So that was something that, um, Mary Jones was advocating for. How do you feel like that's going? Are those, do you see any traction there? And if not, why do you think that is? Um, you know, I, I know at some point there was talk of um, a BJC has a behavioral response, um, a mental health um, um, network. And I re recall and I'll, that- I'll just say that BJC is a Barnes Jewish hospital. So that's yes. smack dab in the middle of town. So, okay. Just exactly. want to clarify that. And their behavioral health response, they were um, supposed to be embedded with, like you said, with the police and going out on these calls. And to be honest with you, I'm not quite sure if that actually started happening. You know, it's interesting. So many things are talked about and, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. Right. Um, but like, for instance, our jail, you know, closing the workhouse. So we closed the workhouse. Um, but, you know, the discussions are going on about what to do with that property. And, and the city is still holding on to it. And I personally go to court. I, I do bond hearings. I, I do court watch. And I've overheard, you know, judges say, oh, maybe they need to put some people back in the workhouse. So it's almost like, you know, these declarations are made. But then when it comes to follow through, I'm not quite sure, you know, how 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 um, dedicated uh, our mayor is to actually doing that. So as far as the, those people being embedded, I'm not quite sure if that actually happened or not. 
Um, I do know that with Forrest through Ferguson's transforming 911 program, um, they interviewed so many people and, and a lot of people said even when they called 911, nobody showed up. Um, there have been people calling about robberies and all types of different issues and no one shows up. And so I definitely think that we still have, you know, some issues. Um, our EMTs are short-staffed over also. Um, so we definitely still have some issues in the city as far as those 911 calls. But I'm not quite sure if um, any mental health people are actually going out on the calls with the police. I have not heard that that's actually happening, even though it was proposed. That reminds me of this detention facilities oversight board. There was a board put in place to oversee the jail. And they're supposed to be doing some great work. They've been together for a year or more, probably almost two years, and still having problems getting access to the jail. So, you know, things have been put in place, but the actual implementation has been, you know, pretty iffy. And I'll say, like, the I don't envy the environment that Mayor Jones has to govern in. Um, the state, so by the state, I mean the state legislature, the governor, um, are treating her like the actual enemy. Uh, I don't envy, I mean, uh, say what you will about our former city prosecutor. Um, I don't, uh, I don't envy the mayor having to clean up after what it sounds like was a wild, whatever you feel about her positions, it doesn't matter. The office was clearly just wildly dysfunctional. Um, and, uh, I know that there have been a tremendous amount of hiring issues across the board because the, uh, the state of Missouri would love nothing more than to strangle, uh, the liberal voters out of St. Louis and out of Kansas City. And so they punish us with just endless yeah. budgetary nonsense, um, including giving ARPA funds back, which uh, maybe the less said about that, the better. Um, you know, I, I'm sympathetic to the fact that it's difficult for a mayor in a city that has virtually no money to stand up housing solutions. That is a difficult, costly, uh, and no one before her, it's not like she inherited a system that was functioning. Um, mayor Jones inherited chaos. Uh, Lida Krusen, I think, um, should be called to some account, former mayor of Lida Krusen, one-term mayor, as well as previous administrations that just kind of shrugged their shoulder at the issue of, of unhoused people. Um, but I think that it's fair to push back on this notion of like, no, you said you were going to find alternatives to community safety. How is it going when those conversations happen with just her administration? You know, when you're asking for uh, you know, verification or validation of you said you were going to do these things. Is the dialogue still open? Is there defensiveness? Is there pushback? Is there any like how? Because I'm very deeply curious about that. Well, I um I believe that when our when our current mayor and, and former mayors also make these promises, you know, I call it marketing campaigns when they're running for election. You know, they have these high hopes, but actually, you know doing the job and implementing it is a totally different thing. So even saying, I want to do some, you know, transforming of this and that and, you know, reforms, um, maybe at that point, the understanding of what that pushback would look like or what the actual implementation would be, you know, was not fully um, understood. I'm, you know, trying to give the benefit of the doubt. But yes, we were definitely made promises. Um, this city has not functioned properly in many years, even before Lighter Cruising, right? And so I don't you know, put it all on our current mayor's back. However, like you said, uh, there were certain promises that were made and uh, people like organizers, people who are concerned about the St. Louis community, people who want North St. Louis to actually be revitalized and have support as well. Those people are definitely trying to hold our mayor accountable for those particular promises. And yes, our state government loves nothing more than to you know, control St. Louis, um, also Kansas City. They, the, it, it's almost like we have to make sure that they're on a leash. And it's that, almost. I th yeah. I would say that the just interrupt you, but I would say the language, <laughs> at least that a lot of conservative reps now use on social media, it's almost like the these Democrat-run cities, which they all put in caps usually, probably because that's how Trump spelled it once. They've almost made us the enemy. Like we're the economic engines of Missouri. We we generate all of the income. We generate all the tax revenue. Uh, and um, I mean, we I, I'd say now there's almost like a, a genuine hostility um, yes. against the and of course the most the the elected officials in both Kansas City and St. Louis um, happen to look a whole lot more like you than than they do me. I don't I don't think there's any any coincidence there. Um, 
But I want to make sure that we talk about the town halls that you're going to be doing too, because I think that I would love for people to be able to uh, find out where they are, if they can come to one and um, where you're going to be and what your schedule is. Sure. Um, well, thank you for that as well. So I am, like I said, trying to build a statewide prison advocacy movement. And that is going to center people who are impacted, people who are formerly incarcerated, people who have family members and loved ones incarcerated. And then the third tier is co other concerned community members. There are some people who, you know, don't um, have that direct um, um, impact from incarceration, but they do care about the fact that you know, these are still community members and they're human. And so we'll support them. So this is a movement that I'm trying to build statewide. And so in, in doing that, I said, I need to go around to the state to talk to folks who are impacted. I definitely talk to people on the phone and social media all the time, but definitely some face-to-face -face conversations is important. And I decided to bring um, these town halls across the state. There are, right, there are nine planned, but right now I have eight of them confirmed. Um, and so the ones in rural Missouri will be in Springfield, um, St. Joe, uh, Rolla, Charleston, Missouri, Hannibal, and Columbia. And so with these events, bringing these people together is really going to be a time of education and a time of unity, really talking about what it, does it look like to be in, uh, um, in a collective manner concerning our prison issues. What does it look like to come to Jeff City, you know, collectively as hundreds of people to demand that something is done? What does it look like to go to your own elected representative at home and talk to them about visiting the prison, going inside and seeing what is going on in prison? I, I tell people, especially folks in rural Missouri, you know, I could probably call your elected official, but you know, I'm not their constituent, right? So they're not necessarily going to listen to me. But because you are local, you know, you probably know them or know of them, um, and they are supposed to be representing you in our state government, it will go further for you to do that outreach. So the town halls is really to bring those folks together to talk about these issues. We're going to watch a documentary about what it looks like to pass criminal justice reform legislation. And again, talk about, you know, how we can do that locally, how we can do that in our state. Um, you know, I, I've taken people to the Capitol before and they've never been to the Capitol before. You know, the, the, the one guy said to me, I didn't know you can just come in here. You know, I'm like, yeah, th this is our state house, right? We elect these folks. We paid our taxes. Literally a public building. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So we can go in and talk to them about, you know, what a hearing is, you know, um, what is the process in, from a, uh, filing a bill to it actually passing become the law? That's a very complex situation. I, I still get confused sometimes in all the hearings and committees, et cetera. So these things, um, more, more education people have, the more empowered they become. And in a unified manner, we definitely can uh, fight for changes and reform, but we definitely need to do it as a collective force. And so that's what I'm doing. Um, so the town halls, if, if people would go to the website, which again, you said mojustice.org, or on social media, it's mojustice.org, M-O-J-U-S-T-I-C-E-O-R-G. Uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, um, and the events are listed. Um, the first one will be in Springfield on November 4th, so uh, that's a Saturday. So for like three weekends in November and three weekends in December, I'll be going across the state, and I have connected with local folks um, down in Springfield. I have some amazing people that, that I'm working with, and um, most of the events will be like at churches or community centers or um, up in St. Joe, Missouri Western has been um, gracious enough to allow us to use one of their theaters. Um, and so, like I said, it's going to be conversations. Kids are welcome. We're going to try to have coloring books and Crayola, you know, to keep the kids uh, busy and uh, provide lunch. So just trying to really bring people out across Missouri who are impacted or concerned about our issues of incarceration um, to together so we can discuss how it looks to move forward as a coalition. Um, so this is where I want to finish up. So, you know, criminal justice reform, I do think that for issues of affordable housing and uh, sustainable mental health programs, as well as access to health care, I've really come around to the opinion that those have to be federally sustained. The amount of money that it takes to um, I've, I've watched programs like this rise and fall in Los Angeles when I lived there many times. Um 
And mm. uh, I could go on about that, but it's very difficult to make programs like this sustainable on a local level because they are so incredibly expensive. But that said though, what are some three no brainer things that the leaders of St. Louis city, Kansas city, Indianapolis, Tulsa, I don't know, name another Midwestern city, Cleveland, I, you know, all Columbus, like what are some no brainer things that the executives and legislative bodies in those places could do tomorrow to prevent people from entering the cycle of incarceration? Well, of course, number one is housing. And, and that's just not necessarily, I, I know a lot of people, let's build new apartment buildings. Um, first of all, we got to make them affordable because in Kansas City this past year, they determined a one-bedroom apartment at $1,100 is affordable rent. And I'm not, I don't know who that's affordable to, but it's not affordable to regular people who are making $10, $12 an hour at their jobs. So actually some affordable housing would be very helpful. Um, I think also, again, that mental health, that mental health care is one of those things where it is pivotal to whatever we're trying to do. So making sure people have access to mental health care and they actually get the mental health care. So I think that is another thing that we can do. And um, there's a pilot program here in St. Louis, and I think they're restarting it for UBI, Universal Basic Income. So actually helping people out. Um, I think in St. Louis is $500 that they're going to be um, giving out for a certain amount of time. So I know that has been attempted in other cities and has been successful. So um, those uh, helps to like single parents. Uh, child care is very expensive. So when you have a job where you're making $12, $13 an hour, but you have to pay $200 in child care a week, that crosses out any anything else that you you know you can do. So I think also some universal basic income, you know, will help people as well in making sure that they actually can't afford to live. It's very difficult to just live today in this country. We have to pay to live. And I think making that easier would also, you know, go pretty far to help marginalized communities. Well, thank you so much for your time. And uh, just so people listening, all of the, the uh, MEML's website information is going to be in the show notes. And um, we thank you so much for your time and we wish you the best of luck with your town hall. And um, we look forward to you coming back and talking about how it went and so about some of the conversations that you had. Thank you so much. This is definitely a new uh, effort, what I'm trying to attempt, the statewide building. It is not easy. You know, it's, it's something that's taken a lot of work, but I truly think that if we can get a statewide, a huge movement going, we can make a difference. So thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to talking to you in the future. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Trust Me with Rachel Parker is a production of MidMap Media, produced by Rachel Parker, Adam Summer, and Sean Diller, with original music composition by Elliot Rosen. 